countless rounds of gunfire rang out in the streets of the Lebanese capital. They want to see the judge, Judge Tariq Bittar, removed as the investigating judge. Political tensions about the investigation into last year's explosion at Beirut court haven't gone away. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we dig into the coverage and look at how news is reported. Here are the media stories we're examining this week. Accountability proves elusive in Lebanon, and many of the journalists covering the country are not helping. If you're the Russian government and you're tired of complaining about news coverage you don't like, there are plenty of ordinary citizens who can do that for you. The death of former U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell the coverage, the obituaries, have been too kind. And another country gets another news channel. What on earth are you talking about? A quick glimpse of why British viewers are tuning out rather than tuning into GB News. Fourteen months after large parts of Beirut were leveled in a cataclysmic double explosion that went off in the city's port, the investigation into what happened that day and why has turned ugly. The judge in charge of that investigation, Tariq Bittar, has made some enemies, powerful ones, in the political establishment. Bittar's pursuit of justice and accountability, his interrogations of top government and security officials, have turned him into the target of a smear campaign in the media and online. On October 14th, tensions over Bittar's investigation spilled into the streets. What started as a demonstration calling for the judge's removal ended in a shootout, scenes reminiscent of Lebanon's civil war. The narratives on what happened at that demonstration are conflicting and have only added to a polarized and often toxic media debate in Lebanon at a time when its people are suffering and the state is often unable to meet their most basic needs. Our starting point this week is Beirut. It's been just over a year since parts of downtown Beirut were obliterated. Close to 3,000 tons of ammonium nitrate stored in the city's port and left there for years. A ticking time bomb that, despite all the warnings, eventually went off. Hundreds of Beirutis paid with their lives, thousands more with their homes and the injuries they suffered. It was one of the biggest non-nuclear explosions in history, and the reverberations, including some of the media coverage of the investigation and the man leading it, have been revealing. There are clear signs that some powerful people don't like Judge Tariq Bittar and his idea of justice. This is propaganda. When you look, for example, at the newspaper Al Akbar, it ran a front page headline saying, Fear God, Bitar, and leave. What is that? If it's not a death threat, what is it? This is not journalism. This is a new level, even for Lebanon, and it should not be okay. And as attached as I am to the principle of freedom of speech, there are limits, starting with the principle of do no harm. And this is simply hate speech. Tariq Bitar is a judicial investigator who promised to reveal the truth. But the political class in general, and Hezbollah in particular, are trying to silence this investigation using a variety of tools, including media. التسييس الحاصل في هذه القضيه وتحديدا في الجزء المتعلق فيها بالتحقيقات وبالاتهامات واصدار مذكرات التوقيف هي ابعد ما يكون عن مسار العداله. 
Hezbollah employs journalists, activists, and social media influencers to write against Judge Bitar and accuse him of being politicized, saying he will reveal fake information and not provide a true and objective report. So as a consequence, the investigation has now become a polarizing issue and uh, where one stands is really dependent on their political affiliation. And in the absence of concrete evidence of uh, what happened on August 4, conspiracy theories now reign supreme. Ever since 15 years of civil war ended in 1990 and the rival militias transformed into political parties, Lebanon's power structure has been carved up among them. The president is always a Christian, the prime minister a Sunni Muslim, the speaker of parliament a Shia. The highest offices of institutions like the central bank and the courts are apportioned along the same lines. Judge Bitar has interrogated or issued arrest warrants against officials from across the political spectrum and has been getting blowback from all corners. The most aggressive and impactful counter-messaging has come from Hezbollah. The Iranian-backed Shia party has the tools, digital know-how, and social media following to make the judge's life difficult. So how does this happen? It's easy. The leader paves the way with a public speech to his people, saying someone should be eliminated because they pose a threat, because they are a traitor. بعمل القاضي الحالي هذا عمل استنسابي وعمل سياسي وفي استهداف سياسي وما له علاقه لا بالحقيقه ولا له علاقه بالعداله then that gets repeated by influencers on social media using hashtags like bitar is playing with fire bitar is a politicized judge in order to destroy his image anyway it's a character assassination we see this play out on three different levels. It could be just an activist who supports a political party, a journalist with a column at a mainstream media outlet, and then there is a more serious and dangerous tool used by various political parties nowadays, which is the digital army. We've seen hashtags against Judge Bitar trending very quickly on Twitter in what looks like a coordinated campaign uh, by electronic armies. Uh, for the most part, these hashtags are used by accounts with either very small followings or exceedingly large followings, anonymous accounts uh, that appear suddenly to engage in these campaigns. And this is an indication that there is an intention and a coordination to put an end to this investigation and all those who would like to see it come to fruition. The campaigns are definitely not spontaneous and definitely not the work of amateurs. This is a judge who is trying to do his job. He is supposed to be completely independent and no one has the right to question what he is doing. And he absolutely should not become either the sweetheart or the enemy of the media. It only adds to his vulnerability because in a country as divisive as Lebanon, someone's hero is de facto someone else's enemy. That campaign culminated a week and a half ago, on October 14th, with a protest that turned deadly. Supporters of Hezbollah and the Amal movement, demanding the removal of Judge Bitar, headed for Beirut's Palace of Justice. When they were allegedly targeted by snipers from the Saudi-backed Christian party, the Lebanese forces, not to be confused with the Lebanese armed forces who were also on the scene. 
What happened next is as clear as mud and was made muddier by the various accounts available online. There are three theories or conspiracies on what happened uh, that day in Tayune. The first one is that the Lebanese forces had snipers positioned on residential buildings and were taking aim on Hezbollah and Amal supporters as they were marching to the Palace of Justice. The second one is that the Lebanese armed forces fired first at uh, these marchers or protesters and then they returned fire. And the last one is that Hezbollah and Amal supporters were the ones who attacked first, uh, entering a sensitive neighborhood and that uh, residents defended themselves. All three versions of the story tell some elements of the truth, uh, but the full story remains incomplete. Getting some of the players to defend their journalism on this story is a challenge. We tried the newspaper Al-Akbar through its editor-in-chief, Ibrahim Alamin. We contacted Al-Manar Television, as well as correspondent Ali Mortada of Al-Mayadeen and former MP and newspaper editor Nasser Kandil. All either declined to be interviewed or failed to respond. The harassment and intimidation aimed at Judge Bittar is also being directed at outspoken Lebanese journalists, and there's some history to consider, to be wary of. Lukman Slim was a journalist and filmmaker, a prominent critic of Hezbollah, who said he was getting death threats over his work. Earlier this year, when Slim was found dead after taking four bullets to the head, the Hezbollah leader's son, Jawal Nasrallah, tweeted, the loss of some people is in fact an unexpected game. Hashtag no regrets. Hezbollah has since denied it had anything to do with Slim's murder, a case that like the giant explosions that left much of Beirut looking like a war zone remains unsolved. Before the assassination of Lukman Slim, Hezbollah supporters used to intimidate him a lot on social media. He had posters plastered on his door telling him to stop attacking Hezbollah. Hate speech is used to build a public opinion that justifies the assassination because they make people think this person is worthless, violent, immoral, and should be executed. Actually, that's how Hezbollah works. And it's damaging freedom of speech in general in the country. Even the most courageous among journalists at night, they go to their houses and they have to face the reality that they are being threatened by an establishment or by a group that has a long history of assassinations. This is really very serious and it has destabilized the whole conversation in Lebanon. And it's very representative of how the whole country is taken hostage. Everyone is taken hostage. Colin Powell, who rose through the ranks of the American military right to the very top before being appointed U.S. Secretary of State, died earlier this week. He was 84 years old. Johanna Hoos has been going through the coverage of his passing, his career, the obituaries. Joe, Powell's was always going to be a complicated story to tell, wasn't it? Absolutely. Uh, much of the coverage focused on Powell as a trailblazer, the first black American to be named uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the first black man to be Secretary of State. The nation paying its respects to Colin Powell, who spent a lifetime breaking barriers. Somebody who broke racial uh, glass ceilings and who was a, 
uh, a, a towering figure. However, Powell is and should be remembered for uh, what he said at the UN Security Council in early 2003, when he parroted some of the Bush administration's most notorious lies, the uh, justifications for the war in Iraq. There were the alleged weapons of mass destruction, Saddam Hussein's fictional links to Al-Qaeda, and Powell even brought a vial to the Security Council, which contained what he said was uh, an Iraqi-made anthrax, which is a biological weapon. Now, the Bush administration was always going to invade Iraq, with or without Powell's help, but what he did was he took those lies and presented them to the world through the UN. Now, Powell later described that speech as a blot on his record, and that's some blot. But if you dig into that record, it's not the only one. No, there is, for example, Vietnam, the My Lai massacre in which American soldiers uh, killed hundreds of Vietnamese civilians, including children. Now, Powell himself wasn't present at that event, but he was involved in the subsequent investigation and the cover-up. In the end, it took American journalists to expose what really happened there, not Colin Powell. So that's what he really should be remembered for, My Lai, Iraq. But many news organizations, and not just in America, are glorifying his memory instead. It's important to note, though, that those obits, most of them, they mention Iraq, but the shortcomings with those obits, with the journalism, as it so often is, is in the emphasis. Well, exactly, emphasis, but also tone. And uh, there were a lot of critics online who pointed that out. For example, uh, a professor at the University of London, Lale Khalili, who tweeted, Colin Powell's justification of the Iraq war in 2003 was only one of the more recent times he lubricated the machinery of imperial warfare. And someone else on Twitter said that people are out here wishing a man to rest in a peace he deprived thousands of other people from is just unfathomable. And the American left-leaning magazine Jacobin titled his obituary this way, Colin Powell, politely anguished war criminal, dead at 84. Okay, thanks, Joe. As we reported last week, the awarding of a 2021 Nobel Peace Prize to Moscow-based journalist Dmitry Muratov was a clarion call on the challenges the Fourth Estate faces in Russia. The authorities there have been gradually, systematically clamping down on journalism targeting outlets critical of the Kremlin or that have revealed graft and wrongdoing on the part of the Russian elite. The very same day as the Nobel announcement was made, another 13 journalists and media outlets were classified by the Russian government as foreign agents. That's a classification that makes practicing journalism there difficult, if not impossible. And it's far easier for the authorities to justify that kind of crackdown when they can argue that the initiative didn't come from them that it came from a citizen, for instance. That's where so-called patriotic activists come in, ordinary Russians working for Kremlin-friendly organizations who make official complaints about journalists that start legal proceedings the government is happy to pursue and enforce. The Listening Post's Tarek Nafa now on efforts to criminalize critical news outlets in Russia and the patriotic activists who are doing their part. Очередной черный день для российских медиа. Сегодня Генпрокуратура признала нежелательным первое средство массовой информации. Речь об издании проект. To be proclaimed as undesirable, it literally means to be proclaimed as an enemy. You are public enemy. Только при упоминании в СМИ его имени и издания проект обязательно приписка иностранный агент. Our media is completely split into two camps. One group 
carries its work out honestly and in good faith. The other slanders and tries to tarnish our country for a client. The client is well known, the US State Department and the CIA. The speed with which this unfolded, it was like someone high up simply said, enough. Someone who was done with independent journalists in Russia. He just woke up one spring morning in 2021 and decided, let's just put an end to this. Since then, it's been open season on journalists. Dozens of news organizations and reporters have been blacklisted, classified as foreign agents, undesirable, or both. Nobody knows for certain what spurred the authorities to act. It could have been the botched poisoning of Alexei Navalny, now imprisoned, his opposition movement outlawed, for which the Kremlin faced few consequences. Perhaps the authorities were triggered by what they saw in neighboring Belarus, where the government was hunting journalists down. Or was it the larger context, the series of investigative bombshells that have exposed Russian officials, revealing rampant corruption in Vladimir Putin's inner circle and beyond? We tried to touch the most tabooed, the most underreported topics. We did a series of articles on the secret families of Russian top rank officials. First was Mr. Putin. It was a story on his secret wife and his previously unknown daughter. We established that they have really enormous wealth. This story, it was like a big bomb in Russia. So we don't know for sure what was the immediate story, which made them angry, but I guess all of them. <laughs> in July, Projekt, a non-profit registered in the US, was labeled an undesirable organization. Raman Badanian, who was also labeled a foreign agent, learned of his new status on holiday with his family and made a decision not to return to Russia. One of the more curious aspects of the case brought against Prayakt and other media organizations is the role played by pro-Kremlin activists like Vitaly Baradin. Baradin is a former employee of Russia's Interior Ministry, who once called Vladimir Putin his political idol. He's active on Instagram, where he shares photos of himself rubbing shoulders with Russia's elite. Baradin made the complaint that kick-started proceedings against Prayakt. In it, he cited verbatim an article from state-owned broadcaster RT, which alleged Projekt had received foreign funding. We saw the investigation on RT. We saw that Roman Bedanian does not hide his links with the US and decided to consult the prosecutor's office to check Projekt's funding and list these journalists as foreign agents. These people who are trying to create a so-called revolution in this country are completing an order from the American intelligence services. And they aren't hiding the fact that this is what they're doing. Last year, Projekt examined the close relationship between the director of Russia's foreign intelligence service, Sergei Nereshkin, and billionaire property developer Godnisanov. 
Russia's top spymaster is seen bumping fists with the businessman after taking a swim in his personal pool. Baradin says that investigation crossed the line. These people who worked on a story about the head of foreign intelligence are almost the same as terrorists. Show me one country where people are deliberately running around filming heads of state, filming the intelligence chiefs. Bedanian is lucky that our authorities, our special services, let him and journalists like him live in peace. The Russian authorities, they need to have a useful idiot who makes a complaint that we are breaking the law. This guy was Mr. Baradin in our case. He does something for the Russian authorities and he receives some benefits from that, some money, some influence. I run an organization which represents the interests of the community, of our citizens. What does it mean that we're some kind of snitches for the Kremlin? Who calls me that? Opposition media? Why doesn't our media call me that? They are just frontmen, put forward to create the illusion that there is a big group of activists fighting for freedom of information and information sovereignty. I'm not sure this scheme has worked. And if you meet them, you realize that these people want one thing, power. And they use these strange methods of complaining about independent media to get power for themselves. Lilia Yaparova is a Moscow-based correspondent for Medusa, whose headquarters are in Latvia. The consequences of being a foreign agent seem designed to slowly kill off the business model that allowed Medusa to become Russia's most popular independent media outlet. Medusa sold advertising to fund its journalism, including to state-owned companies who bolted after it was listed as a foreign agent. The outlet lost more than 95% of its advertisers in a week. Foreign agents are required to post this warning alongside whatever they publish. This also needs to be included on personal posts on social media. The label, foreign agent, not only deters advertisers, but also sources and contributors. However, it doesn't appear to have put off Medusa's audience, Donations from 100,000 readers have kept the outlet afloat for now. I'd say our audience even got slightly bigger because everyone was suddenly interested in who this Russian foreign agent was. This repression made people have compassion for us and we had a successful crowdfunding campaign. If this whole story of enemies of the people, foreign agents and undesirable organizations had been put in motion five years ago, when people still trusted the government, it would have had an effect. But now, I think it's very limited. That leaves Russian news consumers with a choice. Journalism produced by what the Kremlin sees as loyal patriots, or that produced by traitors. The foreign agent law, first adopted in 2012 and expanded several times since, is being used against almost anyone who receives money from abroad and voices a political opinion. But many of the critically-minded news outlets targeted now emerged after previous government efforts to control TV and the press. They know how to adapt to survive. Based on my experience, based on Soviet experience, I believe that Russian 
journalism can survive the future and survival of Russian independent investigative journalism is in potential collaborations. We all under attack. And the only way to survive this attack is to be all together. There are a lot of media outlets who are surviving on the subscription model. And as far as I can tell, Medusa isn't about to close. Despite the repression, we found enough subscribers so I can only conclude that Russians are prepared to pay for the news, to keep informed, to get insight into what the world looks like. As long as they have this wish, I think we will definitely survive. And finally, there's a relatively new player on the British broadcasting landscape, GB News. Just what the UK needs. In a country where most of the newspapers sold already lean to the political right, helping sell politicians like Boris Johnson and policies like Brexit to voters, now there's a 24-hour news channel that does the same. Its mission was described as being a counter-voice to the woke warriors and the establishment media in Britain. GB News launched in June, kind of. It was more like it blew up on the launch pad. Its early broadcasts were a technical disaster. Advertisers fled the channel, as did the journalist it was building its brand around, ex-BBC hand Andrew Neil. Now that it's up and running, giving British viewers a taste of the Fox News formula, we've put together a few clips of what GB News looks like, so you don't have to. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post. Joining me now is SASB Squadron veteran Rusty Furman. Welcome, Rusty, to Talking Pints. Ah, cheers, Nigel. Cheers, very good to have you here. I've learned a very important lesson in the last few minutes, which is when you're doing research live during a program, don't just type Pornhub into your computer. <laughs> if your freedom means I might catch COVID from you, then so be it. If my freedom means you might catch COVID from me, then so be it. For the sake of freedom, yours and mine together, I will cheerfully risk catching COVID. Boris Johnson's not a bad role model, actually, because we know that he's a bon viveur. He likes a drink. He likes a bite to eat. He's highly libidinous. It's the amount of appetites, basically. I have legitimate concerns about Islam and many of the cultural practices in Muslim communities. Tonight, a Media Watch special. We ask companies boycotting GB News for peddling hate. What on earth are you talking about?